Thank you, Father, for uh, manifesting your life in the midst of this earth, showing us yourself, showing us the goodness in your heart towards us, showing us that you have a life in yourself that can overcome the death in this world, that can make everything in this world that's gotten crooked straight. Thank you, Lord, that you've ordained that we could be partakers with you in that life and that uh, you gave us that life because of your love for us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. Um, so, man, we, we have the historical account of the resurrection, which I think the church majors in the historical account, whereby we know an event happened, but we tend to know very little about what it means that it happened, right? And we come together and we feel so happy that this event happened because, honestly, something in our hearts tells us this is a joyous occasion and we feel happy. But we, we tend to not understand a whole lot about what it means that it really happened and how does it work itself out in our lives. And so we have the historical account of Jesus being raised from the dead, uh, man's historical account. And what we have is this guy, Jesus, this man, Jesus, took our own death into his body on the tree, right? Well, some of you are thinking, well, no, he took our sin into his body on the tree. Well, the wages of sin is death. And one of the things that's caused great confusion in the church is we don't understand sin and death are synonymous. We think of sin and we think of our bad behavior. Instead of thinking of sin and seeing the word sin means to not be a partaker in God's life. It means to miss the mark that God had for your life. The mark he has for your life is that you could have a life that could never die. That's the mark he has for your life. And so when Jesus took his, our sin into his own body on the tree, what the scriptures are actually talking about is that Jesus took the result of our sin into his body on the tree. That's death. And so this guy, Jesus, he didn't take his own death. He had no death for himself. He took our death into our, his own body on that cross. And then he took that death that was our death. He brought it into the grave. And then on the third day, he come up out of the grave. And the thing he didn't have with him was death. Amen. He didn't have our death with him. Just from a historical perspective. An academic perspective, there's more primary and secondary historical evidence that Jesus was raised from their dead than there is that Alexander the Great even existed. Right? Now, we don't believe because of an academic record. We believe because the spirit of faith's been poured out on all flesh. That spirit has dwelled in us because we've believed, and that spirit tells us he was raised from the dead. But even from a historical perspective, it's a, it's a verifiable historical fact that this man, Jesus, not only went to the cross, but this man, Jesus, came out of the grave having conquered death. Paul come and said he was seen by upwards of 500 people. 500 people. Mary went to look for him and couldn't find him. And then she had an encounter with him. She thought he was the gardener. I bet he was making some nice flowers. She's like, dang, this, this, can I get this guy to come do the gardening in my yard? I mean... You know what I'm saying? This guy could really get the flowers to grow. But listen, it's like the world wants to come into, because the world hates God, and the world hates Jesus. And so the world wants to try and come and convince us that it's some type of conspiracy theory, that it's some type of fake news. No, the fake news is the news that says Jesus wasn't raised from the dead bodily. That's the fake news. Mary went and told the apostles in the Acts of the Apostles. That's a historical account Luke is writing. Luke is an educated academic historian. And yes, you can find doctrine in the Acts of the Apostles, but he's recording history there. 
from a strictly historical perspective. And you can see that's what he's doing because when Mary come and told the apostles that she saw Jesus, how many of them believed her? Zero. Luke records that. And in fact, they thought she's, you know, sometimes when you're grief-stricken, you like, you know, maybe you ain't seeing things right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You could be grief-stricken over the loss of someone that you love. I mean, you got to remember, Mary's whole life was spiraled downward into destruction, and she had an encounter with Jesus. And for the first time in her life, she felt loved and accepted, and she felt like God was with her through this man, Jesus, for the first time in her life. So you could see that she would be grief-stricken over the death of our Lord. And so the apostles are like, she's crazy. And then what does Jesus do? Bam, now he appears to them. Now we got a whole other group of people that have seen him. A group of people that didn't believe. You have Thomas come and say, I ain't going to believe unless I can touch his wound. And then Jesus is like, Thomas, here I am, man. Do you want to put your fingers in the holes? Paul come and said, and I saw him as one born out of time. And much later, one having rejected the Lord. I saw him physically on the road to Damascus. I saw that guy. Now that's what you call, and then you have people writing about it. Different people writing about the same event and describing it. That's what you call primary and secondary historical evidence. Those are things that even the world uses to verify something that has happened. And we have all of those things recorded in the gospel. And so we have this guy, Jesus, raised on the third day, free from death, Paul says, free from sin, never to be able to die again. And now we have this guy, Jesus, appearing to people, testifying, witnessing to them that the life of God is not at the mercy of the death that's in this world, that the life of God can even take a body that was made from dust and it can glorify that dust body with the very life of God, that God has ordained that humans would be partakers with him in the glory of his life. And here it is, and this glorious life of the Father, it doesn't need for death to agree. It comes and makes death subject to it. Hallelujah. And so we have that historical account of the resurrection. But we could talk about the events and what glorious events they are. And so there's a lot of things we could say about Jesus being raised from the dead. There's a lot of things we could say. We could talk about the physical act of God condemning death in the flesh, right? Of God doing a work that could eradicate death from our flesh. We have the physical act of God doing something to put the death that found an opportunity to manifest in our flesh through sin, putting that death on death row. God sentenced death to death when he raised Jesus from the dead. And the very death that was all the time waging a war against us and committing injustices against us all over the place, every injustice that you've ever seen in the earth, I promise you, death is the father of it. Death has fathered every injustice in the earth that you don't like. Humans want justice more than anything. We want to see justice served. And so the resurrection of God is God as jury, as executioner, and as judge, putting the death that was committing injustices against us on death row. 
and giving us a certainty and a promise that death will be executed and completely consumed from all of creation, even from our bodies, in the return of our Lord. That's the lake of fire. Notice how it says he throws death in the lake of fire. <laughs> Why does he throw death in the lake of fire? Because he's going to consume it to the uttermost. And so we got a certainty that not only has justice been served to us, but that we're going to see the full manifestation of that justice and nothing can keep it from happening, just as nothing could keep Jesus in the grave. It says the pangs of death could not hold him because death can't hold his life. Death can't hold the life of God. And so we have the physical act. We have the historical account. We have the work that God actually did. And we have the word made flesh. There was a word that was made flesh in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is God himself talking to us. It's God manifested in our midst, coming to talk to us and coming to show us his heart. He's trying to have a conversation with us. We get so caught up in Jesus the man. And this isn't to make light of the truths that are contained in Jesus the man. But Jesus is the voice and the word of the Father. We struggle with the concept of how can God be three in one? Well, I can be three in one. You see me sitting here, don't you? Do you hear me talking? Guess what comes out of my mouth when I talk? Spit. No, breath. <laughs> breath. <laughs> three in one. Now listen, my words can't form into something physically. Neither can my breath manifest itself. But those things are coming out of me. And so when we think of God as three in one, we have the Father. And when the Father talks, His language is Jesus. That's His Word. And when He speaks Jesus, His breath comes out. And that's the Holy Spirit. And that's why you can have three that are one. And so the resurrection is the Father. We could say all these things about the resurrection, and they all be true. But today I want to talk about the resurrection is the Father standing in our midst talking to us. And what is He trying to say? I mean, this is Abba. This is the guy that Jesus, when he was in the midst of being nailed to the tree, his heart cried out, Abba, Abba. The resurrection is Abba standing here, looking us in the face, gathering us to himself, and he wants to talk to us. What does he want to say? What's he got to say to us? What is he trying to say? Right? That's what I want to highlight today. Is that okay? Thank you so much. I'm kind of a stubborn Guy, though, even if it wasn't okay, I'd still do it. <laughs> Man, hallelujah. Um, John 1 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you keep reading in the first chapter of John, verse 14 says, And that Word that is God, that has always been with God, that Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only one begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? One of the things John's getting at is there's been a whole lot of cats that have come to us and told us how we can inherit a righteous life. 
There's been a whole lot of cats that have come and taught us the way that we could be partakers with God in his kingdom. There's been a whole lot of dudes that have been teaching us a way unto righteousness. And all those dudes have been teaching us a backdoor kind of a way. It's not a way to the kingdom of God at all. It's actually the way unto death. But this guy, Jesus, he's actually the only one who has come from the Father with the word of the Father, a word about the Father. And that word that this guy, Jesus, has come from is full of strength for us, and it's full of the truth about God and what's in God's heart for us. That's what he's saying there. You get to John 8 or John 10 when Jesus talks about the thieves that have taught you the wrong way, right? That they looked at what was written in the Scriptures and they didn't see they were it was talking about the righteousness of God or the righteous thing God would do to give you the kingdom. They read the scriptures and thought it talked about the righteousness you had to establish yourself to gain the kingdom. That's the lie. And he says that way has been born from the thief. And the, the thief teaches you that way because he wants to steal from you. He wants to kill you and he wants to destroy you. But I am one who has actually come forth from the father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The life I have in myself, it hasn't been born from this dust, this earth. It's been born from above, right? And I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, is what he says. And so John's saying, when he talks about the, the glory they beheld in Jesus as of one that was begotten of the Father, what he's saying is, we saw a life manifested in Jesus that we knew was from the Father. Because God's the only immortal. We saw a life in Jesus. That's why the Pharisees would always say, only God can forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. Only God can send death away from people. Only God can do that. It's only God's life that can do that. And you know what? They were right. But the thing they were wrong about is that that life was dwelling in this man, Jesus. Because the life he had in himself had, been, had come from the Father. It was of the Father. And so John's like, we saw a life that manifested in Jesus that we knew was from the Father. In that life that manifested in this guy, Jesus, it has declared the Father to us. When it talks about glory, we beheld his glory, right? We tend to only think of it like, uh, there's some glory in that, you know, like splendor, right? Like a light shining on us. And that is a true and correct definition of the word glory. But the word glory is also speaking of what it means about the person, speaking something about the person that you see the glory in. And what it means that they beheld Jesus, they beheld his glory, it means that they beheld goodness in him. And the goodness they beheld in him, they knew that it was a word about the Father's goodness towards them. They didn't just see that this guy, Jesus, is walking around being good to us, healing all that are oppressed of the devil and doing good. But this guy, Jesus, doing that, it's a word that that's what's in the Father's heart to do for us. That's what it means that they beheld his glory, right? For so many years in my life, and I still think we tend to do this, I think when we think of the Word made flesh in Jesus, we tend to think of Him being born of a woman, born of Mary, right? We think of the Incarnation. We think of Jesus being born as a baby. That's what we tend to think of when we think of the Word made flesh. And th that's an aspect of the Word being made flesh. 
But the Word made flesh is also pointing to the resurrection of Jesus when His body was begotten of the Father. Where the Father came and raised Jesus up in an immortal body, in glorified immortal flesh that can never be corrupted again. And so the Word made flesh is also pointing to the resurrection. When his body was begotten of the Father and not from the dust of the ground. And in fact, you could not, John would come and say, the final fulfillment of the word being made flesh is Jesus being raised from the dead. That's why John would come and say in 1 John, what does he say? That which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have held, which we have touched, which we have handled of the word of life. John's talking about the fact that they saw Jesus in a physical body that was raised from the dead. Because the Gnostics come and said Jesus was a spirit. He wasn't raised in flesh and bone. Jesus even said, touch me, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone. And so when John comes and says that which was from the beginning of the word of life, he's talking about Jesus being raised from the dead. And so the word was made flesh in the resurrection. It was made flesh in the resurrection. And so I'm going to keep saying this because I'm going to try and get your imagination to ask this question yourself. If a word was made flesh in the resurrection, what is it? What's that word? What's the word? What's it saying? I mean, because a word is something that you speak. I mean, I'm speaking words. So if a word was made flesh in the resurrection, and we know that that word was with God and that word is God, it has to be the word of God or the word of the Father, it has to be the Father talking with us. What is he saying to us in the resurrection? What's he saying? Right? And I could tell you all the things he's saying today. And guess what? I will. <laughs> but what will be very powerful for you is for you to go off from today. You know Abba. Abba, what are you trying to say to me in the resurrection? What is, what is your voice saying? I want to know what you're saying. You start connecting with God about that. That's when what I said to you won't just be words. That's when you'll have a revelation that hadn't actually come from some guy named Greg. It will have come from you inquiring into God. What is it you've said, man? Because I want to know. And it's his good pleasure to reveal to you what he said. And I promise you, when you hear what he said, when you see what he said, it will be a sweet honeycomb to your life. Hallelujah. And so listen, yeah, the word was made flesh when Jesus was born. But that's not all John's talking about. And we could certainly see the glory of the Father in Jesus going around and healing people's blindness and healing the lepers. We could certainly see the glory in that, right? There's some glory there. That's some heavy glory, right? We could see it that way. We could see the glory of the Father when Jesus removes the sentence of death that was hanging over the woman caught in adultery, when he gets rid of the accusers. When he justifies the woman caught in adultery, we could certainly see the glory of the Father in all those situations. And those things were all pointing to the goodness in the Father's heart towards mankind because mankind was not knowing the Father according to the goodness he had in his heart for us. We were knowing the Father according to the sin and the death we saw in ourselves. I don't know if we realize it, guys, but we filter other people's opinions of us through ourselves. And so we look at what we see in ourselves and then we judge what they must think of us. We did the same thing with the Father. 
We saw the sin and death in ourselves. We were ashamed of the sin and the death that we saw. We knew that there's something not right with this sin and this death. We knew that it wasn't right not to be clothed upon. We knew there's some shameful thing about being naked. And then we judged the Father's heart for us through our sin and our death. And so Jesus came to manifest the Father's heart in all of our midst. So we could see the glory of the Father inside of this guy, Jesus. And the glory of the Father is his life. And through the life of God manifesting in this man, Jesus, we could see this life being good to us, comforting us, removing death from us, removing the accusation from us, guarding our lives, defending our name, defending our honor. And we could say, my goodness, the Father is full of goodness towards us. Hallelujah. But the ultimate manifestation of the glory of the Father happened when Jesus was raised from the dead. That was the ultimate manifestation of the glory of the Father. That was the ultimate sign of the Father's goodness towards us when he came and conquered sin in the flesh of Jesus by raising him in a body that no longer had death in it. You want to know how you destroy sin? You destroy death. That's how you destroy sin. And so when God's busy thinking he's trying to heal us, from all the fruit of death that can manifest in our life. He's not thinking about how he's going to come and pick the fruit off of a tree. He's thinking, I'm going to come and remove death, and then nothing could ever take people captive again except my life. You know why there won't be any sin in the new creation? Because there ain't going to be no death. There's not going to be any lack. No one's going to be able to feel weakness or lack. No one's going to think that they don't have something they need. And so no one's going to try to get it. No one's going to be able to lust after their neighbor's wife because they're going to be married to the Lord of glory. <laughs> In John 17, Jesus says, glorify me. He's talking to the Father. He says to the Father, glorify me and that will glorify you. Manifest your life in me and that will declare your goodness to all humans, right? Glorify me and the world will see that I'm in you and you're in me and, and we're one. And they won't just be beholding my glory, but they'll be holding your glory in me. Jesus, when Jesus says glorify me, what do you think he's talking about? You think he's telling the Father, give me some strength to heal the blind. That ain't what he's talking about. Although he did heal the blind. And although his strength to heal the blind did come from the Father. When he gets to John 17, he's not talking about that. When he says glorify me, he's talking resurrection, man. He's talking to the Father about the resurrection. And what he's saying is, there's a word that will be made flesh in me when you raise me from the dead. That's what he's saying to the Father. A word will be declared in the earth when you raise me from the dead. He's saying to the Father, raise me from the dead. Glorify my dying flesh with your life and it will say something to all people. Raise me from the dead and it will be as a word being spoken to all people. It will be as your voice echoing in the earth. That's what Jesus is talking about. There'll be a vibration in the earth. Just like when the... God spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And some people just heard thunder. Graze me from the dead and it will be a vibration, an echo in, of your voice in the earth to all people. That's what Jesus is talking. The word made flesh. There'll be a word made flesh in me when you raise me from the dead. And that word will begin talking to people. And it will begin talking to people about you and what's in your heart towards them. 
And so we see the resurrected Jesus. Yeah, we rejoice historically that this man was really raised from the dead. And yeah, we rejoice that death was conquered. But we also, we see the resurrected Jesus. We see his glory and we see his glory. We see the glory that manifested in him is on account of the Father's goodness towards mankind. You know why God raised Jesus from the dead? Because God loves mankind. Jesus was a man. We separate the Father's love for us with the Father's love for Jesus. The whole point of him raising a man from the dead, a man who had our death on us, was that we could see the love that this guy has for mankind. That was the whole point. That's why Jesus goes on to say, they'll see that you love me, and they'll see, since I'm a man, that you, your love for them is the same as your love for me. That you weren't ashamed of me when I was naked dying on a tree. You weren't ashamed of me when I was filled with all weakness, when I was filled with all death, when I was filled with the totality of the curse. You weren't ashamed of me, but you rather drew near to me and joined yourself to me in that pit and you brought me up out of the miry clay. The psalmist talks about Jesus being a preacher of righteousness and it talks about him standing in the midst of the great congregation having stood up out of the miry clay and declaring to the world the righteousness or the goodness in God's heart towards people. That's the message of Jesus. He stands in the midst of the great congregation. That's this world. And do you know what he declares? The Father is filled with loving kindness towards you. And that when he finds you having made your bed in hell, he doesn't leave you there. He doesn't despise you. He's not ashamed of you, but he draws near to you. He joins himself to you in your hell. And then he brings a plague to hell and he brings you up out of the grave. That's the message of Jesus. That's the word made flesh. So we see the resurrected Jesus and it makes God known to us. It makes God known to us. Because, listen, guys, we knew of God, but we didn't know God. I love what the the Apostle James says to those guys that think faith is just to believe God exists. That's not faith. He comes and says, listen, bro, even the devils believe God exists. (laughs) So, I mean, so what? (laughs) You believe God exists? That ain't faith. Faith is to know God by having seen into the depth of his heart and into the depth of his being. And we have seen the depth of God's heart for us laid bare in the resurrection. That's what he's talking about. You know what happens is, I desire to be able to work out, but I can't seem to find the time. And so the Lord is like, we'll get you a workout while you're preaching, man, and it'll be good, right? (laughs) I'm like, Lord, I got to get back in shape, man. You know what I'm saying? I get out of breath when I preach. He's like, we'll give you a workout while you're preaching. What do we call that? Killing two birds with one stone? So the resurrection of Jesus is the word of the Father made flesh. The purpose of that word being made flesh is that we might know God. Not know of him, but be intimately acquainted with all that he is, all that he thinks, all that he feels, all that he has in himself. It's God laying bare his chest. Come look in here. That's what it is. Glory to God. 
You know, so many times we can think that, and maybe not you and me, I'm speaking in generalized terms, but so many times people can think that God's not talking to them. Right? We can think that we don't hear the voice of God. We can think, why, doesn't he, why isn't he talking to me? But God is speaking to all of us every day through the resurrection. That is God talking to all of us. He is, and that, that spirit that poured out into the earth on all flesh, every day it's trying to talk to us. And the thing it's using to try to talk to us is the resurrection. So it's not that we don't hear God, but we're not recognizing that God's language is Jesus. And so we think we don't hear him talking to us, but we're trying to hear a language that he don't speak in. And so I promise you, if you think you're struggling to hear from God, man, I promise you, if you start getting a revelation that God has spoken to you and is speaking to you today through the resurrection, you'll start hearing what he's saying. And you'll start knowing what it is that he said. Thank you, Jesus. You know, and God doesn't just want to be known by us for our benefit. I mean, he wants to be known by us because he wants intimacy. He desires intimacy. You know, when I was thinking about marrying Becky and wanting to become one flesh with Becky and having intimacy with Becky, I wasn't thinking, well, it'll really benefit Becky if she can be married to me. <laughs> I wasn't busy thinking, well, her life will really work out well for her if she can be joined to me. <laughs> now, I did think we could have a beautiful life together. And I did think that between us being intimate with each other, something beautiful could be born. And certainly I saw that I'm in that dynamic also. But I was more thinking of the benefit I could gain from having intimacy with her. And so God desires to be known. And to be known means he desires to be seen for who and what he really is. And he enjoys that. It's nice for him to be known. Nobody wants to be misunderstood. We feel sad when we feel misunderstood. We feel like we're alone in a corner. Nobody knows us. Nobody gets me. And so God wants to be known. He wants to be known by us. The reason why God got down on one knee in Genesis, and it says that he blessed Adam. That word blessed is Barak. Go read it. It means to get down on one knee in adoration of another. Do you know what we do when we get down on one knee? Do you even know why people get down on one knee and propose? Because God got down on one knee in the midst of his man Adam. And you know what he was proposing to Adam? Union. He got down on one knee and blessed Adam because he wanted to be one flesh with Adam. And he wanted to have intimacy with mankind, which is what Adam means. He wanted to have intimacy with us so that he could produce his fruit in us, so that he could make us exceedingly fruitful, so that he could decorate us with the fruit of his life, so that we could bear his fruit. Right? And we could enjoy this wonderful life together. And we could have this powwow together. Hallelujah. So God, man, God desires intimacy with you. And the way that he declares that to you is through the word made flesh in the resurrection. He desires intimacy with you so that you can be a partaker with him in his life. And you can receive strength to overcome the deadness in your flesh and the death that's in this world. That's what he's after. Because he wants to be able to talk and walk with you for all eternity. All his days. Not all your days, all his days. When I thought of Mary and Becky, I wasn't thinking, well, you know, I like to have her for all her days. No, no, I like to have her for all my days. I know that sounds selfish, but what am I going to do, right? I'd rather not live without her. We always argue about who's going to go first. 
I don't tell her this, but secretly I tell God, we're going together. <laughs> we're going together, baby. So what God does, he desires intimacy with us. You can't have intimacy with someone if you don't know them. And so he sees the problem is they don't know me. They know of me. And actually the things they know of me ain't even close to the truth. It ain't even close to what's in my heart. And so what he does is he comes to make himself known in the resurrection of Jesus. So we could see him for who and what he really is and really what's in his heart. And we can start having intimacy with him and we could find our lives being filled with the fruit that's in him instead of our lives bearing the fruit of this world. That's what he's after. If we look at Abraham, the account of Abraham is pointing to the word made flesh in the resurrection. It's actually pointing to that word that was made flesh in the resurrection. God desired intimacy with Abram. You see how God called Abram out of his land? Abram, get ye up out of your land. You know why he told Abram to get up out of that land? Because God desired to be intimate with Abram. And Abram was in a land of idol worshiping, where people were intimate with their own works. They were intimate with the strength in their own flesh. And God desired intimacy with Abram. So we said, we're going to get this guy, Abram, up out of his land, a land where everyone is all the time intimate with their own works. And then I'm going to make myself known to Abram. And through me making myself known to Abram, Abram's intimacy will be with me and not with the strength that's in this world. And then he will become exceedingly fruitful. He will receive strength to appear as the father of many nations. That's talking about the resurrection. That's pointing to the resurrection. Genesis 17.1. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, 90 years old and nine, you know, in between the time where God told Abram he would be the father, I am your shield and exceedingly great reward. I am your buckler. And I call you the father of many nations. You know, in between when God first said that to Abram and it says that Abram believed, there's 17 years between when God first said that and this verse here, where it now says, and when Abram was 99 years old, 100 years old, God comes back to Abram. And you know what it says? The Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. You know, we've completely corrupted the account of Abram. And we've turned the account of Abram into this great thing that Abraham did. We turn the account of Abraham into his great obedience and Abraham's great faithfulness. That's got nothing to do with what's going on there. What's going on about Abram is that Abram saw who God really was. He knew God and he allowed his heart to be persuaded about what God revealed to him. That's the thing about Abram. If we really wanted to uh, mimic Abram because we think Abraham is so powerful, what we'd want to see is what did Abraham see about God? And then we would see the same thing Abraham saw about God. That's why he's called the father of faith. <laughs> he's not called the father of obedience. The father of faith. The beautiful thing about Abraham is that he saw God. It's not that he was obedient. And in fact, when you look in the scriptures, the word obedience just means to be allow yourself to be persuaded by another. And so the great thing Abraham did was he saw God. 
And he allowed himself to be persuaded by what he saw about God. The power to be persuaded was found in what he saw about God. So don't think to yourself, if I could only be as faithful as Abraham, if I could only be as obedient as Abraham, no, if I could only see what Abraham saw. Because the goodness is in God, not in Abram. God is the all-sufficient one, not Abram. Be thou perfect, he says. I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Listen, man, we read our own ideas of what it means to be perfect into the scriptures. We read be thou perfect and we think your behavior should be perfect. <laughs> you must behave perfectly. That, that's what we think when we read be thou perfect. And we completely discount the rest of the scriptures and everything that it says. Be thou perfect isn't you must behave perfectly it's that God's desire for you is that you be decorated in his life. You think you can bring immortality about in your body? Do you know what God's perfect mark for your life is? Immortality in your flesh. So God told Abram that he would make Abram exceedingly fruitful, that he would make Abram the father of many nations. So now God is coming to tell Abram about how that will happen. So perfection for Abram would be for him to be exceedingly fruitful not for him to behave perfectly. And God is now telling him, the way you're going to find that happen to you, the way you're going to find yourself decorated in my life is by you looking to the strength in my hand to decorate you in life. <laughs> Why do you think God revealed himself as the all-sufficient one? Sufficiency for what? Sufficiency to be the father of many nations. Abram, you think that you're going to be the father of many nations by looking to your strength, by having intimacy with your strength to bring forth fruit in your concubine. And you think that's how you're going to be exceedingly fruitful. You think that's how you're going to be the father of many nations. But your sufficiency to be exceedingly fruitful, your sufficiency to appear in this earth as the father of many nations is not found in your strength. It's not found in what you do. It's found in me and my life. So walk before me. Let your eyes be filled with my strength in my life instead of your own strength in the seed you have in yourself and that will cause you to be exceedingly fruitful. <laughs> Hallelujah. So when you look at the account of Abram, guys, God told Abram, you're going to be the father of many nations and exceedingly fruitful. The problem there was Abram didn't know God yet. He just heard that he would be, but he wasn't knowing God yet. He really didn't know God's heart. And so when God told him that, Abram's intimacy wasn't with God. It was with his own ability to make himself fruitful. That's why he goes off and gets Hagar and tries to produce fruit in her. Well, whose seed do you think was involved in producing fruit in Hagar? God's or Abram's? Abram's. But God's promise wasn't based on the seed that was in Abram. God's promise was based on the seed he had in himself. But Abram wasn't knowing God. So he tried to make himself exceedingly fruitful. He tried to bring it about himself. So you know what God does? I just, remember, I said there's 17 years in between. So you know what God does? He's like, okay, we're going to wait till Abram's strength is completely dried up. We're going to wait till death has had its perfect work in his body and he no longer has a seed in himself to produce fruit. That's what we're going to do. We're going to wait for that. And in Genesis 17, 
That's when it's happened. That's why it says, and Abram was 99 years old. That's why Paul would come and say, Abraham didn't consider the deadness in his flesh or the deadness in Sarah's womb. What did he begin to consider now? He began to know God. And what did he begin to know God as? The scriptures say God revealed himself to Abram as El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, the one who possesses a life in himself that is Abram's sufficiency to be exceedingly fruitful. And so God comes now to show Abram so that Abram could know God as the one that could make him fruitful. So that Abram could see, it's the seed God has in himself that's going to make me fruitful. It's not the seed I have in myself. It's the strength that God has in himself, not the strength that I have in myself that's going to make me exceedingly fruitful. And that's when Abram received strength to appear as the father of many nations. That's why you see Abram on the mount. James comes and says Abraham was justified on the mount. Why? Because on the mount, Abraham believed that God would provide himself as a lamb. And Abram believed that God has in himself a life that can even raise the dead. Who was the dead in that account? Abraham. How could he be the father of many nations if he's dead? If there was a life in God that can raise the dead. Abraham began knowing the God who has a life that can raise the dead. He saw the deadness in his flesh and he said, my sufficiency to be the father of many nations is not found in the deadness of my flesh, but found in the God who has a life that raises the dead. Hallelujah. <laughs> so that's what God's trying to show us in the resurrection. Why do you think Jesus nailed to a tree? The fullness of death in him. Not only that, his hands are nailed. Can't do any good works, can he? Can't do any good deeds. I hate to shock all of you guys. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead because he was a good little boy. He wasn't raised from the dead because of the goodness in him. He was raised from the dead because of the goodness in the Father. And the great thing that Jesus did was he saw the Father was filled with nothing but goodness towards him. That's the great thing that he did. He believed. I love that. There's so many intricate details in the scriptures. Jesus' hands nailed. What, do you, what good thing do you think Jesus did when his hands were nailed to the tree that saved him? Huh? What good thing did he do? Abba, into your hands I commit my life. You know the righteous thing for you to do is to say, I can't make myself fruitful. I can't give myself life. I can't decorate myself in the fruit of God's life. But Abba can. And it's Abba's good pleasure to do that. That's the good thing anybody can do. So Abram become Abraham when God revealed himself as the all-sufficient one because he received strength from the grace of God. Now, just like with Abram, Abraham, God told us from the beginning that he would decorate us with his life. That's what he told Adam. He promised Adam he would make Adam exceedingly fruitful. He did not tell Adam to make himself exceedingly fruitful. How do we know? Because God didn't tell Abraham to make himself exceedingly fruitful. God promised Abraham he would make him exceedingly fruitful. And God was reaffirming the promise that was from the beginning. And if you look at the scriptures in the Hebrew, it's God promising to make Adam fruitful. It's not God telling Adam to make himself fruitful. Even Jesus didn't make himself fruitful. Jesus became fruitful when God raised him from the dead. And the scripture doesn't say Jesus raised himself from the dead. The scripture says that Jesus was raised from the dead by the love of the Father. 
And when Jesus was raised from the dead, do you know what he became? The firstborn from the dead. And now there's going to be many brothers and sisters. He's exceedingly fruitful. <laughs> so God, just like God promised Abram, God promised mankind from the beginning, he would decorate us with his life, that he would bring forth his fruit in us. And just as Abram didn't know God when God promised him, we were not knowing God as father when God promised us. We weren't knowing God according to the goodness he had in his heart towards us. We weren't knowing God according to Jeremiah 29, where God says, I know the thoughts that I have for you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace. You know, peace shalom. Thoughts of only goodness. Thoughts to prosper your life. Thoughts to care for you, to nurture you unto a place where you could never die and you could live and you could be fruitful. Those are the thoughts that I've had in my heart towards you, saith the Lord. We weren't knowing God according to those thoughts. We saw the sin and death that was in our lives. We saw the sin and death in the world, and we were judging God by that. And we said, his thoughts must be really bad. You know, a great example of that is what do we think about a guy when we see something really going wrong in their life, and we, do, we see them do something heinous? What do we think about them? <laughs> Let's be honest. That's the same thing we think about we attribute those same feelings to God. And then we confuse God. When we were knowing God by the sin and death we saw in ourselves and in our lives, it left us living as orphans in the earth. It left us committing adultery on God. We were fornicating with the strength of our flesh to bring forth fruit or to try to be fruitful, just like Abram. Instead of our intimacy being with God and God bearing his fruit in us. Because you can't be intimate with God if you don't know him. And if you're busy painting a picture of God based on the sin and death you see in yourself and the sin and death you see in the world, that won't give you intimacy with God. In fact, what it will do is it will leave you in the place where you're all the time trying to be intimate with your own works and your own strength because you're desiring to bring forth fruit and to be fruitful just like Abraham was. Just as God came and talked with Abram, the resurrection is God coming to talk with us. The resurrection is God drawing near to us to make himself known to us as Father. That's what the resurrection is. It's him coming to us when we're not knowing him, and he's knowing us, and he's desiring to be known by us so our intimacy can be with him instead of the world. And it's him drawing near to us and making himself known as Father once for all time. That's what he's doing. It's God manifesting himself in our midst, saying to us, my heart has always been pure towards you. My heart has only ever been pure towards you. You know, we struggle to trust people when we think their heart is not pure towards us. You know what breaks down a marriage is when one or both parties think the other one has some negative things in their heart for the other one. Because you can't trust somebody if you think there's evil in their heart towards you. So the resurrection is God revealing, this is what's in my heart for you. Do you see what I did inside of this guy? This is what's in my heart for you. I found this guy when he was dead in sin. When I find you dead in sin, you think what's in my heart is to come and smite you. But what's in my heart is to manifest the fullness of myself inside of you. My heart's only been pure towards you. My heart has only ever been filled with the desire for you to be fruitful. 
with the desire for you to be decorated in my life. My heart has only ever been filled with peace towards you. I'm only ever wanting to give you a certainty of a righteous life. That's it. That's it, man. I haven't left you alone to overcome the sin in your life. I'm not standing from afar demanding for you to overcome the sin in your life. I know you can't conquer death. I haven't left you alone to overcome sin. I haven't left you alone to overcome the death that's in the world. I haven't left you alone to make yourselves fruitful. I haven't left you alone to try to produce a righteous life through principles and outward ordinances of touch not, taste not, handle not. That's never been my heart. I grew up in a Christianity where for so long I thought the power to be fruitful is through giving a tithe. And you know what I want to say now is the power to be fruitful is in giving a tithe. But God's the only one that could give a tithe that would make me fruitful. Because he's the only one that could feed the bread of life. I haven't left you there to work principles, to gather to yourself a blessed life. I will be a father to your life. I will give you the care that can nurture you unto life. I will prove that you're mine. I will defend your name against every accusation the world throws against you. I will defend your honor in the midst of everything that tries to tear you down. I will raise your flesh from the dead. This is God talking to us in the resurrection. I'm telling you what this guy's trying to say in the resurrection. Though you might look like a root out of a dry ground that doesn't have the nutrients and the water that's needed to be fruitful, I will plant you in myself. And I will be unto you a well of living water. And I will make you unceasing in your fruitfulness. I am the Lord. I will do this. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, God, you know, he speaks and it echoes easily, but I'm not God. And so if I'm going to get an echo going, even past this room, I got to, you know, amp up the pipes. <laughs> so you guys forgive me if I get excited. This is still God talking in the words. I'm giving shape to the word made flesh. That's what I'm doing. Because this is what God's been trying to tell us. I know you think I've been warring against you because of your sin. But it's the serpent system of sin and death that's been beating you and bruising you. Not me. Here I am. Here I am in your midst once and for all to show you that when I am come, I am come to give you life, not to steal, kill, and destroy you. Here I am, and I am come to remove the sentence of death that was condemning you. Here I am, and I am come to cause you to overcome the death in the world by manifesting my life in you. I am your sufficiency. That's the word made flesh. That's why John goes in in John 10.10. What does Jesus say? It's the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. When I am come, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus also says in John over and over again, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Thomas says, 
Show us the Father and it will suffice us. Jesus says the day is coming where the Father will glorify me and you will see that I'm in him and he's in me and you won't have any more questions about who the Father is. You'll no longer see the Father as the one that was stealing from you and killing you and destroying you because of your sin. But you'll see it was the thief that was doing that. And you'll see the Father is the good Samaritan. And you'll see the Father has come to join you together with his life, plant you in his life so that you could overcome the death in the world. That's the resurrection. That's the word made flesh. And so humans, we struggle to have a manifold wisdom. We get focused in on one part. And I think in the church, we focused in on a historical resurrection. We focused in on that, that a guy came out of the grave. But we've done very bad at understanding what that means and understanding what the Father's trying to say to us, understanding why death had to be conquered, understanding what was in the way of us being fruitful. We think what was in the way of us being fruitful is that we are bad little boys and girls that just don't want to do the right thing. God looks at us and sees that we're not fruitful. He sees us clothed in thorns and thistles, and he sees it's on account of the death that's in the world. And so he sees the power to weed our lives from the thorns and the thistles. It's found in him coming and overcoming death in the flesh in our midst so we could see it and we could know him and we could be intimate with the life that overcomes death and we could start to find his life manifesting his fruit in us by his doing he will cause us to overcome the death in the world and be exceedingly fruitful not by our doing and just because i hammered obedience so much obedience is obedience to the faith so what obedience would look like for us is we hear what God says, and will we allow ourselves to be persuaded that's the truth? Or will we harden our hearts and say, nah? It's a belief thing. That's why Abraham called the father of faith. He saw who God was. He allowed himself to be persuaded. Right? The children of disobedience that Paul talks about, the word disobedience actually means to refuse to be persuaded, <laughs> right? John talks in his gospel about uh, there were some that loved the darkness more than the light. The, the light of God's life manifested in the resurrection, and it declared the Father to the world. And he says there's some that love the darkness more than the light. Those people are the ones that harden their heart to the truth that God is Father, and they refused to be persuaded by the word that was made flesh in the resurrection. And they say, I will father my own life. I will make myself exceedingly fruitful. I will be exalted by my own strength. I will gather unto myself a life that can give me peace and love and joy. That's the children of disobedience. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you that you drew near to us to create us in the image of Christ Jesus. You drew near to us to decorate us in your life, to clothe upon us in immortal flesh. Thank you, Father, that you've taken that upon yourself to do, that you haven't demanded for us to be fruitful, but rather you come to make us fruitful. Thank you, Father, that you love us, that you want to walk with us. Thank you that the work that is needed for us to be fruitful and have life is finished. Thank you, Father, that you haven't even just finished the work and then left us to find the path, but you finished the work and you come to grab us by the hand to lead us into the path of your good work. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit. 
Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. I love all you guys. Have a great resurrection. Enjoy yourselves. Enjoy your family. Not just your physical families, but enjoy your family in the Godhead. They are with you.